Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts Eric Johnson and Alicia Swamy, and together we are Exposing Mold. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Today, we are here with Ryan Blazer from Test My Home. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining We'd love to hear about your company and what services you offer and how you help serve the mold injured population. Sure. So my company's name is Test My Home and we operate in Idaho, Utah, Arizona, and possibly expanding into Texas and Southern California shortly. And we not only test for mold, but we test for chemical exposure, EMFs, air quality, allergens, sound lights, vibration, basically anything in the environment that could be causing any kind of harm or toxic load on the body. What, what do you find are the most common causes of resident symptoms? I would say mold is probably definitely really high on the list. And then uh, EMF and then chemical exposure, people just not using healthy products in their home. I think those three are the biggest ones, but probably mold, I would say, is, is the biggest one, the most dangerous one, at least. So take us through an assessment. Say, I'm calling you. Hi, my name is Keely. We had a water leak and my children are now sick and I've been really tired and had a poor memory. Can you come check out my house? What would an inspection look like for me? Sure. So we'd spend about an hour getting some information from you and going over the history of the home, the history of you, your health, how you interact with the home. Of course, what water leaks we've had, what if you, there's any visible mold, and then we would go into the home and we would spend a couple hours going through air quality, just visual inspection, looking for gas leaks, chemical leaks, air quality, ventilation, humidity, air temperature in the different areas, seeing what the flow of the, the airflow through the house. And then based off what we see, then we can take a whole wide range of different tests. You know, we can do ERMI, we can do actinomyces, we can do endotoxins, we'll do surface samples, air samples for source identification, we can do cavity samples, you know, a whole range of different things and tools. And once we have all that information and data, then we can put that together. But then if if we start to find a lot of these issues, we're going to want to look at the EMF levels of the home as well, because we want the, let's say you're exposed to mold and you have mold illness, and we're trying to get the body back to a healthy state, it's going to get to a state faster if we can reduce the toxic load in the house just in general. You know, and we're going to go through the, the cleaning products, the personal care products, make sure that we're not introducing extra toxins into the body. Because as you know, mold, mycotoxins is a toxin. It's a chemical into the body. And so if we can reduce the overall load, the body's going to have a lot better chance of, of getting rid of and detoxifying a lot faster. So we want to bring the home to a pristine state. So once you identify the toxins after doing a health assessment and getting an idea of the family's health and then going in and finding potential issues, do you handle the repair side of that or do you outsource that to another company? How does that transition happen? Yeah. So we'll outsource that to a a third party. We're strictly testing, you know, conflict of interest. We don't want to be doing 
grading our own paper, so to speak. So we're strictly just testing because we want to have a pure lens when we're going into a home to find the problem. We don't want there to be any kind of money involved on the back end that's going to skew our results one way or another. But once we find the mold, we come up with a solution. We'll create a mold uh, protocol that they can hand off to whoever they like, or they can, you know, we have people in our areas that we work with that we know do a great job. And then in some cases, we can work with them as a consultant just to make sure that the job does get done to our standards. We have quite a bit higher standards than most other testing companies, just because a lot of our clients are very sick from mold. So it's not just a Oh, well, we have this leak. I was on vacation. Come get it fixed. A lot of our clients actually have some pretty serious illness. And to get those people to a healthy state requires a next level of detail and cleaning. And so we work with remediation companies that will provide that level of expertise. So it sounds like after making the diagnosis of the house, you actually do a write-up in terms of mold to kind of support the remediation team and the client that you're serving because... I think we all know not all remediation companies are created equally and some that specialize in mold actually practice really harmful techniques that can hurt the inhabitants even more. So could you tell us a few of your, I mean, without giving away trade secrets, omit, omit what you'd need to, but you know, what, what do you ensure that your client has to have for remediation for those highly sensitive people? Yeah. You know, on the trade secrets, we don't have any trade secrets. I'm, I'm here to share and teach as much as we can because this is a problem that is such a big deal in the world right now is unhealthy people and mold is one of the biggest causes of that. And so much as we can educate, the better. But, you know, we we like to think about the source a lot of times as the main problem. But in most cases, it's not the actual mold growing under the sink that's making you sick. It's the mycotoxins and the mold spores that are coming off of the mold that are going up into the breathing air that you're breathing in, that are in the dust, that can get in your food. You know, unless you're going underneath the sink and licking the mold, it's not the actual mold. So a lot of remediation companies, they'll come in and just focus on the source and remove the source, but then they don't do anything to address the mycotoxins and the mold spores that have been spreading throughout the house and the HVAC that are stuck in your carpet, in your clothing, in your bedding. That's the important part that a lot of uh, remediation companies miss the mark on. And so we we're really diligent about not only identifying sources, but let's find out how contaminated the house is and what do we got to do to bring the house back to a healthy state again. And and sometimes that does require getting rid of the carpet, throwing your couches away, and in really severe cases, walking away from the home. You know, we we don't like to we don't like to see that, of course, because that uproots people's whole lives when they have to do that financially and emotionally. But in some cases, if that if the mold is bad enough and their health symptoms are bad enough, They've got to walk away from that stuff. But most of the time, we can come up with more of a middle ground. It's a combination of cleaning and detailing the home and getting rid of as much of these mycotoxins and mold spores as we can and reducing that overall percentage in the house. Yeah, it's never easy to be the bearer of bad news if someone has a house that's not in a state that's able to be fixed or if the occupants are just so sick, it's not in their best interest. I'm wondering which types of molds are coming up in the most extreme health cases that you see? You know, it's funny you say that because, you know, with one of the lesser ones, cladosporium, we actually did a job recently where the whole crawl space was infested with cladosporium. They had forgot to put a drain on the bathtub and this home was only four years old and we went in to inspect it. I opened and crawled underneath there and it looked like black velvet everywhere. And they'd never crawled down in the crawl space. They had no idea, but they were extremely sick. 
they thought it was from long haul COVID, but come to find out it was, they had a high, high levels of platysporium throughout the whole house. I mean, in the 60 to 80,000 spore count was making them very sick. And a lot, a lot of times we'll think of cladosporium as one of the lesser molds, but in this case, it was making them really sick. And so a lot of it has to do with how much of the mold and how susceptible the body is. You know, of course, ketomium and stachybotrys are always the heavy hitters we see in a lot of water damage. Aspergillus comes up quite a bit for people that are sick. You know, it's not as much of a known microtoxin producing, but in homes that people are really sick, I do see aspergillus quite a bit as well. So it just kind of depends on the level of the mold, the amount, how long they've been exposed to it, and how sens- or sensitive their body is as well. I'd like to point out that it's uh, interesting how people can survive an entire carpet, an entire wall of cladosporium. And yet, sometimes when people get sick from stachybotrys, it can be a few square inches. Yep, you're absolutely right. We're, you know, the quantities, small amount of stachybotrys, but, you know, in this case, it was the whole crawl space was infested with it. And so when we have large amounts, it, it, it can be a less dangerous mold. And so it just depends on the quantity versus the dangerous. Yep. That's a good point. I'm curious as to the percentage of issues that you find in a home. So you basically listed mold, EMF, endotoxin, antinomycetes. What would you say is the most problematic that you find in homes? And then thereafter, what, what I guess proceeds that? You know, with technology these days and internet of things and 5G and cell towers, EMF comes up every single time. So we're always having that conversation of how can we reduce our electronic exposure in the home? Because at some level, it's affecting people. It might not be the thing that's making people totally sick, but it is one of the things that's keeping them from being better, getting well faster. And so that in combination with a lot of these other things is probably the biggest issue that I'm seeing across the board. You know, that second would be mold for sure. And then, like I said, the the chemical usage in the home. A lot of my clients have already gone down the road with chemical and they've made their home a lot less toxic, but I'm still running into a lot of things. You know, look under the counter and there's bleach sitting right next to their ammonia. It can create toxic gases. And so, you know, those three things really are the heavy hitters I'm seeing a lot. And what about, pardon me, the advent of smart meters? A lot of people's utility companies have in place these smart meters, and that's not really something that you could just unhook and throw out, right? How are people managing or how are you helping people that have smart meters that you're finding is a problem for them in their home? Yeah, sure. So the first thing is trying to get the power company to switch out to an analog. And in some cases, they're willing to do that. In other cases, they go tell you to pound sand. They're not going to have anything to do with that. And so in those situations, you can buy little Faraday cages that you mount over the smart meter and it will attenuate the signal quite a bit. But we got to think about what's the neighbor's smart meter doing. You know, you got to make friends with your neighbor and see if you can put a, a little Faraday cage on theirs as well. And some people just on the cheap end, you can just go out there with some tin foil and some duct tape and cover that thing up. And it's going to help block a good amount of that energy coming off of it. Now, this is really interesting. Everyone loves to uh, talk about Dr. Klinghart's study of the EMFs and the mycotoxins, but it's never been reproduced. Now, I know that in your experience, you are an uh, electrical engineer and you do specialize in health hazards in the environment. Have you ever run controlled experiments, N equals one, in your own setting to see if Klinghart's predictions are accurate that when a mold colony is exposed to EMFs that they produce 600 times more mycotoxins? You know, I have not done that. 
And I would trust in Klinghart's scientific method because I do quote that actually quite a bit and warn people of that as well. But no, I haven't actually reproduced that. That would be something interesting to dive into and do that. I'd love Eric to chime in here and kind of give you his perspective because he has actually done an experiment of that magnitude. In his well, life. I just thought that we could do a, a, a mental experiment, a thought experiment, and consider what would happen if you installed a cell tower in a neighborhood and all of a sudden mold increased its toxin production 600 times. We would have death zones. And since I don't see any death zones, I don't really rely on that, that concept. Yeah. So that's interesting that you say that because that would make a lot of sense. You would think, and especially because everybody has Wi-Fi. I don't, I maybe a handful of homes in all my years of doing this where I've gone into the home where they don't have Wi-Fi, where they don't have Bluetooth speakers or Alexas or their cell phone and their laptop and iPad sitting out on the, on the countertop. You know, we have so much radio frequency energy in our environments. Yeah, you would think that there would be some sort of a, a difference there, but maybe because everybody does have this stuff and very few people do, maybe that's why we're not seeing these death zones, as you would say, because you know, in the cell tower range, when I test homes, it can be pretty high outside. And once you go into the home, it can drop significantly to the point where now the devices inside the home are taking over and being just as much or more powerful than the influence from outside. And that's one thing I see with, with EMF a lot of times. People will call me up and they'll say, well, I got the cell tower down the road. Or I got the 5G. Come inside my house and let's help. Let's do some shielding. And I'll walk in and they'll have all these devices. I'm saying, well, first of all, let's talk about all these devices you have in your house. You know, let's go in your office and the wireless printer and the laptop and the Wi-Fi. These things right here are going to be putting off exponentially more power than that cell tower that you're worried about down at the park at the end of the street. And so, you know, thinking about hotspots, everyone's home is almost like a hotspot these days. And so, yeah, that is an interesting concept. And I would, it would be interesting to dive into that more scientifically and get some more background on that. Well, I did an experiment of building myself a mold-resistant mobile environmental control unit. It's basically a camper, but it's built to be chemically inert and mold resistant so that I could use it as a test bed, a blank slate for doing various experiments with exposure to mold zones, with proximity to sick buildings, carrying contamination in and out, and exposure to these electromagnetic fields. And one of the things I did is go out to the woods, make sure that my camper was as good as it gets. I mean, it feels great. I've got no contamination. I'm mold-free. Everything's cool. And then I go park next to a cell tower. Guess what? No problem. No chemicals, electromagnetic sensitivity, no electro hypersensitivity, no problem at all. I feel zero problem. So, and I was uh, hypersensitive to electric uh, appliances when I was exposed to mold. And I found it was fascinating that if I'm completely mold-free, I have no problem whatsoever. Interesting. Yeah. No, I love it when people challenge some of these things that are out there in the communities, you know, that we all talk about. And yeah, mold is so much more dangerous around Wi-Fi. I think it's great that you're doing these kind of experiments and kind of challenging that narrative and seeing for yourself, because I think it's important to, to do that. Yeah. Conversely, I could then go deliberately get some stachybotrys and bring this into my camper, go back to the zone, then I would develop uh, the sensitivity. Interesting. Wow. 
That's pretty so cool. My uh, method is to make sure that I'm completely free of contamination because so long as I do that, I have no problem with computers or electronics at all. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, you're decreasing the overall load. I almost wonder, Eric, because we know that when someone gets exposed to stachybotrys, it primes the immune system. Stachybotrys in and of itself produces T2 trichothecine mycotoxins, which are radiomimemic. They give off radiation in and of, of themselves. I almost wonder if there's some sort of synergistic effect going on with that radiomimicacy. Is that a word? I don't know. I just made it up along with the EMF, you know, and, and, and we've talked to a Finnish microbiologist, Dr. Tamara Tuminen. She's amazing. She was mold injured. She literally poured her funds into studying this stuff. So we rely heavily on her research, but she does report and she does see that once people are exposed to the bad mold, right? The, the ketomium, the fusarium, the stachybotrys that they then have these downstream sensitivities, whether it's to chemicals, to electronic devices, to EMFs. I mean, it's really interesting. Well, I do have kind of a theory about that, you know, based on my own experience and um, looking at these mold spores as charged particles, that they're acting like miniature capacitors and absorbing some electrons and their electron spin is increasing in the proximity of these electromagnetic fields and becoming more problematic to our immune system. But of course, that's my only, that's my vague, speculative, crazy theory. And it's only on my own anecdotal empirical observations. And I haven't got anybody to look into it yet. However, I do believe that stachybotrys has special qualities as a nerve agent irritant. I mean, we can see that this really takes people apart, far so than other molds. So I speculate that it's acting as a principal sensitizing agent to make your nerves stand on edge so that you're going to have problems when you go into these fields. And I could reproduce this by proximity experiments where I could take my sample of stachybotrys, leave it outside the camper, go into these, these zones, get myself comfortable, everything's stable, I'm feeling in a steady state, and then gradually bring this closer and closer until I start to sense some kind of effects. And it seemed to me that electronics were amping up. They were almost like a Geiger counter for detecting the presence of this other particle, because the closer it got, the more I could feel my computer or my keyboard or whatever electronics have a, a current charge at that moment. And I could switch off that charge, reduce the effects somewhat, which could almost fool me into thinking, well, that proves that this is the keyboard, that proves that this is the computer, when it wasn't doing that, so long as I could get that sample of stachybotrys away from me. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting stuff there. You know, I, in a real world scenario, just to kind of echo that, I would say nine out of 10 of my clients that are in moldy homes that are, have mold illness are sensitive to electronics. I see that every time. And that's why we've included EMF as part of our package is because they do go hand in hand with each other. And you, know, you kind of dove in there pretty deep on us as far as the mechanistics of what happens there. But you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing similar things as well. Well, it's an interesting experiment because it will in my view, fool you into focusing so heavily on EMF fields that you wind up subtracting in attention to the clues that indicate maybe it's not really so much the EMF, it's the contamination that's brought into your presence 
that's somehow synergistically amping up this effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and you know, I've noticed it's all it's not usually just one thing when we go into a home. It's not just mold, it's not just water, it's not just EMF. It's usually a combination of these things. And when they come together, you know, one plus one a lot of times equals four or five. It's not they have an additive effect on each other when you when you combine these together. Well, there again, I, and I see this with Dr. Shoemaker's work with actinomycetes, and he's kind of all over the map looking at everything, adding up to this kind of toxic load, which he calls toxic soup. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. What about the instances where people didn't have a problem until the toxic mold started growing? They had all the same levels of chemicals, EMFs, pesticides. Everything was the same. The only thing that changed was the black mold started growing. Then they started having these effects. So instead of thinking this is a toxic stew, a toxic overload of anything and everything, what would happen if we attach importance to this one thing and dredge it for all we can get? Is it possible that there's something about this one particular substance, this toxic black mold, that is so bad that it could result in everything else? seeming like it had gotten worse. And that was the mental model that I had going into this. Could it be that there was no problem and nothing really changed until the mold grew? So what would happen if we were able to recreate an environment completely devoid of this one thing, this one substance? Could we get back to the way we were before and not have these chemical or electrohypersensitive problems? And that was my experience. And this is something that Keely and I have experienced as well, because I mean, we were deathly sick and no one was helping us. I mean, I was going to a shoemaker doctor, mold doctor, they were making me worse. And it wasn't until I started running my own experiments and doing exactly what Eric has been doing and what basically achieving what he has been saying makes a lot of sense. But, you know, Eric has been trying to get this studied for so long that people are just kind of closing the door on him. And as we know, there is no funding money by the NIH for toxic mold. They're looking into Aspen and everything else. So we verified that through a conversation that we had with the EPA the other day. It was an open forum. And, you know, they're looking at Aspen species. They're not looking into the stachybotrys. And so we're like, we need to figure this out. What's going on with this particular toxic black mold or the T2 trichothecine producing molds that is really kind of just wrecking havoc in people's lives and making them sensitive to literally every single thing. And that's that's really our goal. And that's our mission to, to look more into that. But I'm really curious, Ryan, I'm sorry, we're, we're like bombarding you here with all these new ideas and concepts. I'm sure you're going to ponder after this conversation. Are you finding a correlation between finding stacky and increase or, or severity of symptoms in the people that you're you're helping? Or I guess either... Stachy, Catelmium, or Fusarium, all the trichothecine producers. I am, yeah. Yeah, you know, going to a home, we take mold out of the equation. The symptoms overall are quite a bit less, even if they have chemical exposure or, or EMF or they're in a brand new home with VOC off-gassing. We add mold to the picture, it multiplies everything. I'm definitely seeing that. Have you ever had to write a letter for someone to use in the court of law, deeming that their house is unlivable or unsafe and that they should leave the home? Yeah, I've had to do that before with people. It's mostly for people that are renting their homes and their landlords are not letting them out of the lease or not willing to fix it. And these are unfortunate situations. You know, It's always nice when they play nice and they want to fix and create a healthy home. But that's when we see it the most is a landlord tenant situation where they just don't want to get in and fix it. And so, yeah, unfortunately we have to do that. 
I want to tell you about an interesting experience I had. I, about two years ago, had to abandon a rental after we found mold, including Stachybotrys. And at that time, I didn't understand residual contamination. So I had all my clothes from that rental, not understanding that there that could be any way that that could be problematic for me. And I never in my life had any type of electromagnetic frequency sensitivity but after leaving this rental and you know having all my clothes on me, I remember shopping for shoes at the mall with my kids. They all needed new shoes, and there was a really large TV at the back of the mall. And if I got within a certain range of this television, my legs actually felt like they were going to go out, like something was short-circuiting me. And I was unstable and was very acutely aware that this TV was doing something really bizarre to me and I had to get away from it. And if I got out of this range, it didn't bother me. Mm. But TVs in general don't do this to me. And I don't have a problem with TVs if I don't have like contamination on my clothes or contamination in the house. I don't typically just react to electronics. So I just wanted to share that because I think it's a really interesting example of someone who never had an EMF sensitivity when I'm drenched in probably mycotoxins that we can't even test for and who knows how many mold spores. You know, there was something that actually had some type of reaction that seemed to short circuit my neurological system. I mean, my legs were ready to give out. Yeah. No, I, I see that a lot. Like I said, about nine out of 10 of my clients that are in moldy homes that have developed the chemical and electrosensitivities. And, you know, in like your case, it seems to go away when you're not in the mold, which is great. And I have clients that it's not the case for them as well. It's like about half and half where they get better, they heal the body, they get the mold out of the body and they clean the environment and their chemical and electrical sensitivities go away. In some cases, it continues with them as well. And that's why sometimes we'll go into these homes, we'll fix the mold, fix the body six months down the road. They're like, we're not feeling good. I'm still having symptoms. I'm not feeling great. And that's when we got to go to the next level of getting rid of the, the EMFs in the home. And then they can start to see a little bit of a reprieve. So it'd be interesting to check back five, 10 years later. Do they still have these issues or is this something that the mold left more of a lasting scar on their body that made it more sensitive, you know? And so that would be an interesting study as well to look into that. I think, you know, the takeaway from this conversation in general to you know, people that are listening is that it is a synergistic effect between EMF and mold and chemicals. And and we're seeing this a lot. And so if you're in a situation with mold and you want to get better quicker, look at some of the other things as well. You know, people usually get really hyper-focused on mold and they go down that rabbit hole and mold, mold, mold. Then they forget to think about some of the other things in their life as well. And we could even dive into food and, and mental care and fitness. You know, that's another conversation, but you want to look at all these things as well, because mold does such a great job of tearing down our body. It makes us so sensitive to these other things and whether it's working together or, you know, Eric, like you had mentioned some of the stuff, you know, diving deep into those mechanisms, whatever that might be, it's pretty clear that these all work together against us. You've, you've been testing for actinomycetes. Dr. Shoemaker's really changed his focus for a long time. He was primarily directed at ionophore mycotoxins. And now he's talking about endotoxins and actinomycetes. So have you switched your focus? And are you finding higher levels of actinomycetes in mold? No, not, I wouldn't say higher levels. You know, we started bringing that into our testing practice about two years ago, just because we were getting some cases where we were doing testing and 
nothing was coming up, but they were still sick. And so just to broaden our scope and make it more comprehensive, we started doing nictinomycetes testing. And sure enough, it was starting to come up every once in a while. You know, we just did one recently where they had a crawl space, but they also were a horse family. They had horses and horse races. And so they're bringing a lot of bacteria and things into the home that combined with the the crawl space was pretty wet. And between those two, we had a pretty high Actino score in the house. And so we had to do a pretty thorough wipe down and cleaning. The mold wasn't too bad, but it was Actinos. And if we wouldn't have measured for that, we probably would have missed the mark on that one. But since we did test, we were able to find pretty high levels and do a big micro clean of the home, put a new vapor barrier down, do a HEPAVAC and wipe in the crawl space and the upper level. And their symptoms, you know, after moving in within a couple of days, they'd said they're feeling better already. So the old argument to dismiss mold was that mold is everywhere. I mean, you can't escape mold. So why are you complaining about it? And now we're transferring this over to actinomycetes. This is a common soil bacteria. They're everywhere. What would you say to that? I would say the same thing I say to mold. It's, it's, it's the level at which these are building up in our home. And expect, and in this case, the, they didn't get a lot of ventilation in their house. They didn't have a fresh air intake. And so all this stuff was building up in the home. And under a normal scenario in a healthy, normal person, we can detox and we can get rid of, we can tolerate a certain level. It's when it becomes a problem and then starts to build up and then compounds with other issues in the home that we start to see these big issues. But yeah, the, you know, there's normal amount of stuff everywhere and we can't walk around in a bubble. It's when these become a problem and we're exposed to them. I mean, when we're in a home, 90% of our lives and people are working from home and homeschooling and they're sleeping at home and you're never really getting out of your environment to get a change. It's kind of like going to the gym and working out, you know, lifting weights once in a while is really good for us. But if we were doing bicep curls 12 hours a day, we would destroy our muscle. We need to have a break from this stuff and we need to have a chance for our body to acclimate. And so when we're in these environments nonstop with these high levels, we're certainly going to have a problem. I can't figure out why teachers and school children are dropping like flies, but not gardeners and ditch diggers and people who are sucking down uh, potting soil full of actinomycetes all day long. That's a good point. You know, maybe they're outside in the fresh air and the sun, and, and, and maybe they're getting some benefit from that as well. And maybe it's what's coming off of the actinos that are more harmful. And you know, that's something that I think needs to be researched a little bit more as well. There's not a lot of information out there about actinos, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah, the um, research, though, seems to be directed at looking at prevalence as opposed to what this stuff is actually doing. Because over and over again, when patients complained about a specific situation pointing at a wall that has mold in it or saying, this object really bothers me, the researchers look at it from the point of view of, well, how much of this can I measure? And they're kind of ignoring the fact that people are going, no, wait, there's something about this that's really, really bad. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get a you know, doctor's take on this that knows this subject well of what is it actually doing to the body? What in the body is it causing harm? And why, why are, is our bodies pushing back? What's actually causing that? Yeah, this was a problem in the early days of mold discovery where people would complain about mold, but they would complain equally about one square inch of stachybotrys or an entire wall of aspergillus, which made no sense. So uh, people complained about me pointing at stachybotrys because they go, well, mold is everywhere and you, you just can't ignore all these other molds. Well, the observation was that extremely small amounts of this one particular thing were having an effect that 
science doesn't understand. So I think we need to look at that. And we probably need to look into that for actinomycetes as well to see if there's a situation where they're doing something extraordinary because we're seeing this problem light up in new buildings, old buildings, even outdoor culverts when there was no record of things like this happening in the past. So why are actinomycetes or mold such a problem now when prior to the 1980s, we don't really have any record of this. Yeah. And I wonder if it goes back to the, the EMF levels going up and the chemical load going up and you know, just synthetic products in general, our, our environment's just becoming more toxic. The further down the path we go, we're becoming more and more dependent on these chemical and synthetic products and getting less and less or more away from nature. And I think that might be one reason as well. Yeah, I really wanted to find that out because at the inception of the chronic fatigue syndrome, when everybody's arguing over this controversial illness, they were pointing the finger at all these different things and electromagnetics was one of them. And yet this outbreak lit up in a place, it's the last location you would ever expect to have any problem for its pure lack of EMS. Cell phones weren't even invented yet. So if we don't go back and look at the progression of these types of complaints, we miss that clue that we were actually seeing microbes acting in a bizarre way prior to the introduction of all these current electromagnetic fields. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, you think about what what could it be that's causing what's in the soup that's making us sick, you know, and there's thousands and thousands of toxic elements to our lifestyle between lighting, chemicals, sound, vibration, EMF, allergens, mold. And so what combination and at what level, and then you take into account someone's body and their genetics and their makeup and their predisposition to disease and illness. And you combine all these together. And it's really hard to put a science to that and say, this is going to happen in this scenario with this case. I mean, there's just so many different variables to look at. And that's why taking the holistic approach and looking at everything as an umbrella. And that's why with our company, we do all those different testings in all those different areas so we can look and see what stands out. What is it? How can we drop this toxic load, this environmental stress on the body, and at least take these things out of the equation? So then we can start answering some of these questions. Okay, this, this, and this are out of the equation. Now what's happening with the body? Is it getting better? Is it staying the same? Do we need to revisit and see what else is out there? Because I think there is also other stuff out there that maybe we're not aware of that's not on our radar yet. And so these are all things to look into. Listen, a large number of audience members have been reaching out after hearing my tragic COVID story of losing my family member because the hospital treating her refused to provide her the medication she needed to fight the virus. I appreciate all the love and support. And my biggest piece of advice, advice that I've been providing over and over again, is to begin multi-drug treatment day one of COVID symptoms. At mygotodoc.com, you can obtain help from Dr. Saeed Hader, who has treated over 40,000 COVID and COVID long-haul patients with zero deaths. Yes, you heard me, zero deaths. That's an impressive track record for sure. Once you sign up to become a patient at mygotodoc.com, you can send free messages to Dr. Hader's care team forever and obtain prescription medications from the most affordable pharmacies in the country that ship right to your door. And you don't have to deal with price gouging or corporate pharmacies that stop you from receiving the life-saving medications you need. Now, although we're hoping, fingers crossed, that Omicron means the end of the pandemic, many researchers are predicting another wave in a few months. That means high-risk patients need preventative treatment or at least meds on hand so they can start treatment fast. 
Low-risk patients often benefit from off-label meds because they can prevent long COVID. A recent article in Fortune magazine states that one of the pandemic's biggest mysteries, the symptoms of long COVID, may be playing a huge part in the millions of missing workers. Over 100 million Americans report having lingering effects of the virus. Now, thankfully, after learning all that I know and going through all that I went through, I signed myself and my family up for mygotodoc.com and stocked our medicine cabinets with all of the life-saving medications I wish I had for my deceased loved one. Please learn from my mistakes and prepare yourself today. Mygotodoc.com is your go-to resource for COVID-19. Well, I had this debate with Dr. Shoemaker, and for a while there, I thought he was going to attach more importance to the stachybotrys, but instead he's gone the other way and more into the like toxic overload theory. When from my point of view, when this thing emerged, it was clusters, clusters of people in a single room in a certain building. Now, if you have nine out of 10 people getting sick all at the same time in the same place in a way that's never been seen before, genetics is very unlikely to have played a role. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a fantastically improbable statistical coincidence. So if so many clusters emerge where it seems to overwhelm the idea of toxic overload or genetics, maybe we ought to look in that particular environment for something that changed. So that's what I did. And I found that a common denominator that emerged over and over again was Stachybotrys charterum. So Part of the problem, in my view, and I explained this to the old Congress, is that with their idea that this is inevitably the result of a toxic burden, a toxic overload, they've already shut off their minds to looking at any one thing. So I could take these researchers, these doctors at the old Congress, and go, I could put you right outside the door of where these teachers got sick, and because you've already decided that it was toxic overload. You're not really interested in one thing. No matter how many times people point at one particular mold colony, if you decide that it's carpet fumes, it's pesticides, it's genetics, then the impetus isn't there to focus on this one thing and maybe find out that it's doing something unexpected that's not in the medical literature. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Absolutely, yeah. I'm really curious, how often are you seeing environments being bad? And what I mean by that is, how often are you seeing higher spore counts of the bad stuff outside than inside someone's home? You know, not as often as you would think. And the interesting one recently in Arizona, they were getting sick every time Well, they moved into the home, they were getting sick in a new home. We thought maybe it's chemicals. We go in and test, we do and all these tests and we're not coming up with much inside, but outside levels were fairly high. She called me back a couple of months later and saying, hey, every time we have these big dust storms that come through, we get these sick flu-like symptoms, headaches, all this stuff. Come to find out they didn't install the filter correctly on the air intake from outside. So it was sucking air from outside, doing some more tests, come to find out there was pretty high mold content in the desert across the street when they were doing construction and stirring up all this dust. And you wouldn't think that in a desert. But yeah, that was a situation that was kind of educational for me to learn about mold coming from the outside, getting into the house, but you know, getting through the HVAC system where there wasn't a filter and, and affecting the the occupants inside the home. What well, were I'm really glad you mentioned that because um, 30 years ago, the idea of mold from outside 
being more of a problem inside was so outrageous that the testing was predicated on comparing inside to outside counts. And if it was worse outside than inside, then you were obvious, you were immediately excluded as having mold as a problem because that, that can't be it. Mold is outside. And in the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, the one that started this entire syndrome, the front of the school, the outside, was a bad zone. It felt bad. People that parked out there noticed that this place was intolerable. And the CDC and researchers couldn't figure this out. And they did try to remediate the front of the school. They ripped it to pieces. They tore out the carpet. They did everything they could to fix the microbial load in this one location. And it did help. But it didn't fix the problem entirely. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that the bus sheds, the moldy old bus sheds that were upwind of the school were torn down, that the problem completely disappeared. So the actual source point of the problem was not in the building itself. It was in these bus sheds upwind. Researchers were completely unable to detect that. Even the top mold experts in the world, all the people that analyzed the situation, completely missed that clue. And now that they've missed it, they've got it embedded in their literature that there was nothing to find there. And they refuse to revisit the circumstances to see how if you go back, look at the documents of how this whole thing took place, it all makes sense. But of course, you have to realize the toxic value of certain microbes, such as stachybotrys, as something that can create an illness that is somewhat unfamiliar. Yeah, no, that's that's such a good point. Yeah, it's just that's kind of like thinking, well, there's a toxic factory outside upwind from me. It's, it's okay because it's not in my house. I mean, that line of thinking just doesn't make sense. Of course, if there's toxic uh, mold and mold spores and mycotoxins outside on your patio, in your garden, on the side of your house, at the neighbor's house, and it's upwind, of course, that's going to get into your environment. Yeah, you can't, you can't compare outside inside to get a sense of if it's safe or not. It, you know, I take outside samples, but it's just to get an idea of what's going on outside. And I do it on the upwind side of the house for that reason, because I want to see what is blowing towards the house, what's coming into the house from outside. Uh, and I don't use that as a comparison of good or bad. I just, it's one more data set to find out what's going on outside as well. Yeah. 30 years ago, the idea of a problem like this in the desert was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. You went to Arizona for a guaranteed cure. If yep. You had any problem, move to the desert and that's it. Your problems are over. And that's what they thought about Las Vegas as well. It's a desert. There can't be mold. That's no. There's no mold in the desert. And people moved there and they started getting sick. And over and over again, it was associated with certain buildings and especially in the HVAC in those buildings. And that's when they finally started analyzing some of the uh, species of mold. And of course, Stachybotrys jumped out in a really huge way. So when people were pointing at sick buildings and they first started doing these testing, they were actually looking at what people were pointing at. But over time, when uh, testers got out their microscopes and their Petri dishes and their testing methods, they started saying, oh, well, we find more aspin than we do stachybotrys, so that's the problem. And they would tell people this. They go, well, we, we're finding all kinds of cladosporium, uh, trichoderma, so that must be your problem. And people accepted on the basis of that test result, well, that must be it. And this window of opportunity when stachybotrys really jumped out in a big way was actually buried under the mindset, the idea that whatever we find the most of 
is obviously the problem. So I think that the uh, mindset, the methods, the philosophy of the mold experts is actually subverting a really interesting clue of the timeline of when toxic mold jumped out and started making people sick in a way that was not previously documented. Yeah, that's good. Now, now all the listeners that are listening, we just frustrated them. Now they can't go to the desert and they can't go outside. Now we got mold everywhere. Now everyone's freaking out. <laughs> <That's Right. true. laughs> I went to, I went to the desert. I went to Arizona and got an apartment and the thing nearly killed me just not even being there a year. So <laughs> I, I am a testament to that. And it's just, it's awesome that to hear you even say that you take samples from the, the wind direction of the home, you know, where it's hitting the home. I mean, who does that? No one does that. These testers are out of their minds. I'm going to tell you something. We have interviewed a lot of testers and we have no idea what the hell is going on in this industry. I don't know. It's <laughs> so contradictory. It I, is. I don't tough. get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, even myself, I'll still listen to the podcasts from a lot of the good, you know, some of the big names out there just to get their other opinions, see what other people are doing, what's working, because it's not an exact science and none of us know the exact thing to do. We're all working the best we can, taking our knowledge and using the resources we have. But it's the people I think like like me and other big ones that care about people's health. I came from mold illness myself. And so it at the time I was doing mold remediation and I was getting really sick and it turned from a job to I, this is something that is saving people's lives. And so once it becomes that in your mind to where we're actually healing people, we're making people better. That's what changes. Now you go into it like, we got to find what the problem is, what the source is. How can we reduce the overall load in the house and get these people better? You know, that's the goal. That's how you got to look at this stuff. Please, well, let's, hear, let's hear about your own mold illness. Yeah. How did it happen? And, Eric, um, you're and in my you brain. To, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and how difficult was it for you to find help understanding this? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of between projects, you know, I'd, I'd worked as a, in Arizona, I worked at a company, I owned a company where we designed and built recording studios, nightclubs, we did nightlife entertainment. So it was all about sound, music, lights, video, the environment, clean air. And then it was kind of between projects. And a buddy was like, Hey, I got this mold remediation come, I need you to come help me uh, manage this crew and end up working there for a while. And I wasn't as careful as I should have been on some of these projects, you know, wearing masks when it was obvious, but when it wasn't obvious, I wasn't wearing my mask. I wasn't being careful. About the same time, I had a house that I had to put an addition onto and the sloping of the roof wasn't draining right. And it was actually draining right into the wall and coming down the wall. And looking back, I didn't test what kind of mold it was, but no, it was pretty, I was pretty sure it was black mold or you know, it's got to be one of the damage and you know, water damage molds. I got really sick to where I, you know, I couldn't keep food down. They thought I had stomach cancer. They want to take my gallbladder out. Finally, when I got out of the environment, quit working for the mold company, did a lot of research, realized, okay, I got mold toxicity and had to go through some serious detox. But yeah, after that journey and knowing how serious mold was really changed my outlook. And that's kind of one of the driving factors why I started this company is, you know, I was so big on the environment stimulating people in the nightclub industry and in the entertainment industry. I didn't know about the dark side of the environment. Okay. What can the environment do that can hurt us? I've seen what it can do to stimulate people. What can it do to hurt us? And that's when I started going down the road, went back, you know, got the building biology certifications, took different jobs in different industries. I worked for Department of Environmental Quality in their air quality division. I went and worked for Department of Energy and the nuclear and the chemical cleanup. 
for a couple of years and just learn as much as I could about environments. And that's when we started this company to ultimately go into people's homes and help them heal. People that had been in my situation that didn't have the answers or the resources uh, to go in and figure out what the heck is going on in the environment and how can we get you better? Yeah, this, the book is a history of chronic fatigue syndrome. In fact, it's the only one that really tells the true story about this mystery illness lit up in sick buildings and all doctors blame viruses and absolutely refuse to look into the sick buildings. But it's fascinating that you talk about how they wanted to take your gallbladder out because on page 33, they noticed that the teachers, the uh, sick people in these buildings, all of a sudden their gallbladder were exploding. Mm -hmm. And the uh, doctors promised that, oh, well, that must be the problem. You've got a gallbladder, gallbladder infection. We'll take this out and your problems are over. I mean, that's it. That's the source of your problem. So they were doing these gallbladder surgeries. And what they found is instead of the stones, that they expected to find, it was a thick sludge. Mm -hmm. But this was a peculiar common denominator that the surgeons and the doctors had never seen before. So what the, what's going on with this? And in Dr. Shoemaker's books, he says, well, how ironic, because the gallbladder is the central portal for detoxification of these ionophore mycotoxins. So there we see a clear pattern of people lighting up with gallbladder problems in moldy buildings from ionophore mycotoxins, because the body can't detoxify these things without itself causing damage to the gallbladder and to the intestines. Yep. Yep, exactly. And so, I mean, people are listening. If they have their doctors saying, you need to take your gallbladder out or you're getting sick and you're not looking at your environment first, that should be the first place you need to be looking is what is in the environment. You know, and obviously people listening to this are probably already aware of mold. And so they've gotten here. But looking at the environment and let's address the environment, let's get you out of a moldy environment first before you start taking body parts out of your body. Yeah. And the people that went through the surgery after being promised that this was going to help make them better, they got worse. They could not recover from infections. They couldn't deal with their illness and their symptoms got worse. So this was so contrary that they actually became scared to, they weren't so eager to do this gallbladder surgery anymore. But it's fascinating to me how this clear pattern emerged, which points to the mechanism, the etiology of what's going wrong here. And yet we as patients are capable of seeing these patterns and doctors and researchers are not because it's not in their medical literature. Yep. Ryan, I have a question. Do you have any residual sensitivities when you go in and do these inspections? Do you ever have a reaction to the house that you're do you ever have reactions to the houses that you test inside of? Sometimes I do. One I did recently, it was a pretty clean home. I wasn't really expecting much. And I lifted up a flower pot. You know, I always look, check underneath those. That's a common place for mold. And sure enough, boom, right there, there was a whole bunch. And I kind of, it kind of hit me and I got away from that. The rest of the day, I had a kind of a headache, a little brain fog. I always, I always carry binders with me. And I also do regular detoxing just because the line of work that I'm in. I'm in the middle of a, a pretty good detox right now with Dr. Pompa, his program, but I always carry binders and, and stuff with me. And so if I get into a situation where, you know, I get exposed before I have a chance, you know, when I go into crawl spaces or places that are, I know for sure there's mold, I got the full suit and the respirator, but sometimes in just an average home, you know, you can't walk around in these inspections fully suited up the whole time, you know? And so there are cases where like in this situation, I lift up the flower pot and, and boom, it, it hit me. You know, I go out to the truck and I take some binders and some caprylic acid and some things to help break it down. And 
uh, just kind of help take care of my body as much as possible. Now, you know, my body's in a much better state that I can handle these things. And luckily I don't have the HLA, DR gene to where my body can detoxify mold pretty good. And so I just try to take care of my body as much as possible and support it in the best way I can. So that when I do get exposed, my body knows how to get rid of it. Did you get the metallic taste in the mouth? Not that time. No. Uh-uh. But have you had it? Sometimes. Yeah. What? Yeah. And so what's the mechanism behind that? Well, I believe that it's a um, surge of galvanism, oral galvanism, that somehow the body in throwing off this inflammation and all these oxidative radicals is increasing galvanism to such an extent that it actually deplates the restorations in the mouth. And this, this becomes perceptible to you. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So you learn stuff every day. It's a theory. <laughs> We call Eric, Eric Gump, because he just seems to know everything and be a part of every portion of the mold history <laughs> aspect, every doctor, every research institute. <laughs> He's been there. <laughs> That's great. It's good to have someone like that on the team. Absolutely. He's our education guy. But, uh, you know, you said something about the HLA DR gene. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I had a conversation about this the other day with someone. Eric, I, I really would love for you to just maybe chat more about that, because this is something that is constantly being pushed around in the mold community and that the merit behind it isn't as solid as what people think it is. Well, Dr. Shoemaker, when he developed this theory, he said he found this correlation and believed that this was actually a driving force in this epidemic, why so many people are having problems with moldy buildings. And I took issue with that. As you can see, I'm sort of an argumentative person. If something doesn't make sense to me, I challenge it. And because I saw clusters of illness, entire rooms of people getting sick all at once, I wasn't too enthusiastic about this genetic theory. And I informed Dr. Shoemaker that even if there is a susceptibility, people are going to focus on that so much that they're going to completely miss the clue how these clusters of people, in which that would be very improbable, are overwhelming that theory. In other words, people, doctors in particular, are so eager to blame the patient, they will fixate on this HLA-DR susceptibility to the exclusion of attaching importance to just how bad the environment became. And as a result, when we were writing Mold Warriors, I declined to get his HLA-DR testing. I told him that doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. And I wasn't aware at the time that Dr. Shoemaker concluded by that that I must not have his genes because in his view, if you have these genes that you can't recover from mold. So by the time uh, surviving mold was written and he had learned a little bit more about my strategies and how I view this, he said, well, I, I have to know. So he actually paid for my testing, the man that I have it done. And I wasn't really interested in doing it, but you know, of scientific curiosity. And it turns out that I do have his dreaded genes both of them. So in his view, I should not have recovered by mold avoidance. And I said, well, have you seen anybody else with these genes recover strictly by mold avoidance? And he goes, no, you are the only one. They go, well, that's because I have a different view. I have the military biological warfare uh, strategy of treating a particular thing as a primary sensitizing agent, avoiding that one thing. And this is what has allowed me to focus in narrowly enough that I can take control of this without trying to think of this as toxic soup. And I hope that this would induce Dr. Shoemaker and his Shoemaker doctors to take more interest in one particular agent as a sensitizing primary cause 
but they went the other way and they've kind of reverted into going, no, no, instead of looking to one thing, we're going to look at more things and more things and more things. And now they've in, drawn so many factors into their SIRS construct that it's hysteria, it's Lyme disease, it's brown recluse spider bites, it's actinomyces, it's every species of mold in the book, it's particles. And to me, that's not valuable information. And if I were entering this illness now, I would be so confused by what they're trying to tell me that I would be completely helpless and unable to take any portion of control back by avoiding the primary irritant that's really bothering me. Yeah, that's that's some really good stuff there. Yeah, you are all about turning things up upside down and getting to the bottom of stuff. I like that. Yeah, I'm sure we could probably sit down and talk for hours about some of the stuff. That's really fascinating. And like we said, it's good to challenge some of the stuff and think. But you did mention something that I think is very powerful. A lot of people don't think about is your mindset in this. Where what's your mindset to is is your mind say yeah this is gonna help me or does my mind say no I can't get better because I have this because I do believe that our mind is very powerful and it does play a role in how we heal and detox from this stuff. You know I'm I'm a big follower of Joe Dispenza and you know the power power of the mind I think is very powerful. So I think that's a good point you brought up. And if you think it's going to be a certain way, then it probably is going to be that way for you. Do you think the COVID lockdowns and, you know, quarantining everyone in their moldy homes has just increased this problem and has really brought it to light even more so than before? hundred percent. Yeah. You know, when it first, the first lockdowns came, you know, we were real nervous, like, well, what's this going to do to our business? Because we're a home-based business and we're really freaking out. Guys, this is going to shut us down. Here we go. And it did for about a month or two, but after about two to three months, our phone started ringing off the hook. And what we were finding out is that people, after being in their homes, you know, kids that were normally at school are now in their homes, and parents that are normally at work are now in their homes, and they're spending 100% of their time inside their home are getting sick and getting these strange symptoms. And we were, get, it was crazy the, the stories we were getting like, holy cow, we're, get, we're getting this, we're getting that. I'm at home. What the heck is going on? It's got to be in the home somewhere. We've done this, we're eating great. What is going on? Can you please come check and tell us? You know, we're doing as much stuff as we could uh, over Zoom and consults and things, but we absolutely saw a big increase from people spending more time in their home. And I think it created a lot of awareness in this topic. Do you think people, we know the answer to this, but I want to see if you know the answer to this. <laughs> Do you think people who are sick with COVID have a harder time recovering in a moldy home? Absolutely. Yeah. 100% for sure, without a doubt. I think. They have a hard time recovering from a lot of things. Their body's just getting beat up, not just COVID, but from any any sickness and any kind of deal, weight loss, stress, whatever it is that their their body's trying to fight and deal with. Mold just makes it all worse, hundred percent. Yeah, we we do have some stories, and I think we do have the father of a daughter who died in a moldy dorm from a virus, an adenovirus, was it Keeley? And so we do know that. If you're being exposed to a moldy home, you're going to have a harder time fighting the virus. If anything, it's going to put you in a more vulnerable state to get maybe a, a worse outcome of the virus, whether that's death or whether it's long COVID. And so we we have this crazy theory where we think that long COVID is actually just mold exposure, that these people can't recover because they're continuously being, their immune system is suppressed and they can't get over whatever it is. And that it's a similar finding in what Eric went through when a, a virus came through his town in Tahoe. And then the whole aspect of chronic fatigue syndrome happened and how the people who were in moldy buildings were never able to really get well or get better 
after this virus hit them. So except for Eric, because he practiced avoidance. So uh, maybe him and a few others, but you know, it's just, it's really interesting concept to see that this actually has played out in the eighties. And from what we know back then to now, it's like, where's the disconnect of information? You know, why didn't the CDC find this out? And why are we applying what we know from this incident to now, you know, because they were called out to investigate this. It was a very serious issue. And so it's just just really interesting things that we like to think about and things that we ponder about. And another question that I have for you, Ryan, is like, how would you qualify a home as like a danger zone? Like how many spores of stachybotrys or ketomium or, or whatever would you qualify a home as, okay, this is a red flag. We need to do something about this. You know, that's, that's a really good question. And that can have different answers. And I give that more way also to the occupants of the home. If it's a middle-aged 20s male that exercises great health, he's going to be able to tolerate a lot more than 70-year-old with dealing with cancer or some chronic illness. So there's obviously a big scale there of what the body can tolerate. And I'll give advice a little bit differently depending on who I'm talking to and, and how bad their symptoms are. Now, of course, some of these like black mold and ketomium fusarium, some of the, the water damage and the mycotoxin molds, we don't want to see those in the home at all. And so we always want to reduce those loads as, pos- as much as possible. But some of the more common ones, the cladosporiums and the aspen in some cases, we can see a little bit more of those in the, in the spore count. So when I'm seeing you know 400 to 800, let's say in the aspen, that's where that's kind of like the concern, the slight concern range for me. If I'm seeing over 800, and I'm talking counts per cubic meter, if I'm seeing 800 to 1500, that's when we want to go and we want to find the source, let's reduce it. If it's over 1500 or 2000, that's when I don't like to see them in that environment for very long. And so just to put a number to that, to throw that out there, and I'm sure there's probably gonna be mold experts out there saying, oh my gosh, you should never have anything. Or there's some saying, oh, we can tolerate more and everyone's got their range. But just as a general rule of thumb, you know, I try to, to kind of go by those numbers when I'm, when I'm guiding people. And that's for an average healthy person, right? Someone that's allergic or someone that's very sick, let's get those numbers as, as low as possible. But sometimes we're talking, that's what the background levels can be. You know, where I'm at here in the mountains in Idaho and Sun Valley, we got springtime coming. We got spring runoff. We have a lot of water. We have a lot of moisture. We have a lot of decaying and things going on in the forest. And so our mold count outside can sometimes be higher than that anyways. And so we need filtration. Uh, in the home to bring those levels down uh, to more reasonable levels. But, you know, the dangerous, the water damage molds, I don't like to see any of those. And we need to find the sources of those. We need to get it fixed because if we're, I'm in a home and, and we're doing, and, you know, air sampling, as you know, can be very misleading. So I, I like to call it source sampling. And so I'll take an air sample by the source. I'll disturb the source. Let's say we're underneath the sink and we see some water damage. I'll tap on, on the wood to kind of disturb what's coming up underneath and see if I can capture that in an air sample. Uh, I don't typically just set it out in the middle of the room and pull a sample and say, okay, here we go. That this is you're good or you're not. I use that for source identification. So if, if any of those water damage indicator molds show up in a, in a disturbed source sample, then that's the green light to move forward and let's open that up and let's remove the source as much as possible. And then by taking dust samples and taking ERMI analysis throughout the house, I like to do it. I like to do the carpet sample because in my experience, I found that taking the Swiffer reads about 10 to 15 higher than if you do a carpet sample in my experience. And I just did one recently with a doctor here. We want to do an experiment where we took the same sample from the carpet 
we took a sample from the HVAC filter and we took an Ermi with a, a cassette, an air cassette, and we took one with a Swiffer and we sent them into three different labs and we got three different results. And so it's dependent on how you take these samples was going to give you different kinds of data. I know I'm getting off track here a little bit, but to back up, you know, that kind of determines what we're going to do with the house. And so if there's contamination in the house, that's going to be a different set of advice versus if we just have a source under the sink somewhere with no contamination. So from what you just said, do you think testing is foolproof? It, I think that every time you do a test, either visual or a sample, or you talk about history of the home, it's like a thousand piece puzzle. That's how I like to look at these jobs. When I walk into a job, it's a thousand piece puzzle that's laid out on the table. All the pieces are upside down, scattered out. Every little piece of information I can find is turning over a piece of puzzle, putting over a puzzle, we're putting it together. And by the end, as much data as I can get, much information as I can get, that's going to give me the picture. Now you're never going to have a complete picture, but you're going to have enough of the picture to know what's going on, but you got to know how to collect the data, where to collect the data and what it all means. Yeah. Often it seems like when testers come in, they just don't collect enough data or you have to direct them on what to collect, right? I've been through so many testers, so it's just been hell for me, (laughs) but it's just really interesting that they don't have a set standard protocol where they just take like an exorbitant amount of data. It's just like a few, there's like one or two spots and then they qualify it. Okay. Yeah. Based on this very limited sample, your home is fine, you know, but you're still. So yeah, the problem is anybody can go down to the Marriott for two days, pay 500 bucks and get their little stamp that says they're a mold certified inspector and then order up a a sample pump and start collecting samples. I mean, that's, that's not where this comes from. You have to I always talk pain to purpose. You got to go through this yourself. You got to be in the thick of it. You got to go to war with this stuff before you really start learning about these things. You know, Eric is not a big fan of a lot of people, but I really think from what you just said, he's going to be a big fan of yours. (laughs) But I'm really curious, how often do you see remediation successes or failures? Which one is more in this case? You know, it really comes down to if they're willing to put in the money and the time, or if they even can put in the money and the time to do it the right way, I'll write up a protocol. You know, We'll see contamination throughout the house. We'll have five or six sources. I'll say, we eliminate these sources. We need to fix the contamination in the house. We're going to have to deep clean, you know, close through the washing machine twice. Let's clean the bedding. We're going to have to get rid of couches. Let's switch out the carpet. I'll lay it all out for them. And then I'll hear back in a, in a couple of weeks, like, well, you know, we went out and did bidding. We really can't afford to do that. We're just going to kind of fix the couple sources or we're going to have my uncle Bob come over and tear this stuff out. And then I find out they got sicker and well, you didn't follow the protocol. You didn't listen. They're not really willing to put in the work, but if people will actually put in the work and they'll follow the protocols, the majority of the time they're going to see results. They're going to get better. Yeah, that was my experience. I mean, we've been rent, we were renting a luxury apartment in Scottsdale and, you know, we, we came home from vacation to see our ceiling buckling in and, you know, the, the mold tester was great. I mean, he was honest, just like you, and, you know, they write up these protocols and this is what the, the property manager presented to me was the protocol, but the actual scope of work was something that she never wanted to give and always diverted every time I asked for it. And so that's, I think that's where the missing link is, is like the testers are providing good protocols, but are they being followed? 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and who is responsible. And if they're not being followed, what happens, you know, if the person becomes sick thereafter. And so that's kind of where we were, you know, I got extremely sick after they did the remediation. And then, you know, the spore counts are like 15 for stacky. It's like, that's not going to really hold up in a court or they could argue against that. Even if I tried to break out of my lease, I'm stuck paying for an apartment that I can't live in because it makes me sick. And this is what happens to a lot of people. They get stuck in these situations where it's like, I'm a hypersensitive and only takes a few spores for me to get sick. And somewhere down the line, the remediation was not followed properly for whatever reason. I don't know because I can't see what they actually did. And then, you know, you can't live in that, that location. And so it's just, it's such a hairy situation for a lot of people going through this. And it sucks that, you know, I I've gone through mold as a homeowner. Now I'm going through mold as a, as a renter. And it's just like, when does it ever end? You know, does it ever end? Where are the good remediators? And and I guess in your opinion, the whole side of remediation, like are people just doing what is most cost-effective or are people usually following protocol or people doing the right thing? I mean, what are you seeing in this industry? Are you seeing a change in the industry? Like, are people getting better at this? Are, are more testers that are honest coming out of the woodworks to help people? What are you seeing overall, just in general for the testing and remediation side? You know, we're, we're in the area where I'm at here, Boise, Idaho area, kind of where I started this, this company. We, there's maybe one other tester, I think, that knows what he's doing. The rest of them are basically salesmen for the remediation companies where someone's going to call around and, you know, my price, I mean, I'm anywhere from 1500 to 4500 depending on the size of the home, to collect and do a proper remediation testing and remediation plan protocol. But they'll call up these other guys. Oh yeah, we'll come out for 200 bucks. Or in some case, there's even a couple of companies that will come out for free. But of course, they're just trying to sell you on the remediation from their company. So I think it's really important, first of all, to find out, is this an independent tester? Is this all they do? Or is this a salesman coming out from a remediation company to try to sell you on their on their service? So that right there is a, is a big difference because they're probably just sending out one of their junior guys with with the pump and the flashlight, and that's going to be a lot different. Now, some of these newer inspectors, maybe they are independent. The problem is, I think they maybe will want to find or minimize the problem, not say you have as big of a problem as you really do, because they don't really know what the what the problem is or where the problem's at. You know, if they take an air sample, it comes back high, but they didn't track down the sources. What are they going to tell you? Well, I don't know. It's somewhere you got to figure it out. You know, they, they it's hard for them to build a remediation protocol unless they've gone through it and seen the other side of it. And so, it's really important to first find someone that's an independent tester, but then two, make sure that they know what they're doing and they've been around for a while, that they have the experience and they're using the proper tools, and that they know what to do about it when they're done. And I know that's tricky and that's hard. And sometimes you got to make some phone calls to get that done, but there's people out there. So it, say that I'm a, I'm an audience member, I'm listening to this, you know, and I need someone to come and test my home. What do you have like a series of maybe a few questions that someone can ask to see if who they're vetting is actually legitimate and would actually be helpful for them? Yeah, I would ask them what their process is. I'd ask them how long it's going to take. I'd ask them, uh, does it include a remediation plan? How long they've been doing it? You know, you know, asking the right questions. How are they going to test? Are they going to do cavity samples? Are they going to do ermies? What's their process? And and that's tough. You know, listening to a podcast like this and ed- educating yourself, I w- I think is a big one for people that are just starting out. Is listen to the professionals first figure out the terminology, know what, know what you're talking about. Unfortunately, people aren't 
experts until they have to go through it themselves. And once they go through it, then they become experts. But until they have that problem, they really need to learn about this industry because it is really hard to really navigate it. And, you know, unfortunately, I get people that by the time they get to me, they're like, well, this is, you're my third inspector that I have come out. And sometimes they're kind of leery of me, like, you know, are you going to take advantage of me? Or you just, you know, do you know what you're doing? And, you know, and finally they, they land and we take care of the issue. But sometimes they've had to go through several people before they find someone like me. Thank you for that. I really do appreciate that, Ryan. And, I, you know, I'm finding something very strange happening right now in the industry. And that's a lot of mold testers saying Ermies are basically bullshit. I don't understand what's going on. Do you, am I the only one realizing this or what, why are mold testers now turning, turning against Ermies? I think it's just a lack of education about, you know, Ermies can be very powerful tools, but it's not, it's not the only tool. It's just like some people say, well, air samples are horrible. Don't trust them. Well, it depends on how you use them. If I go take an air sample right by an open window, of course, it's going to be crap. Or if I go take an air sample after you just vacuumed your floor, your kids have run around. It's going to be elevated naturally high. You got to know how to use these samples and what to do with them. They can all be valuable tools for the overall set that you're trying to get the data back from. Absolutely. Hey, mold doctors and experts, I'm speaking to you. Do you have patients that no matter how hard you try, you just can't help them in the way that they need? Are you treating mold but seeing people stay sick or get worse? There may be some key points about toxic mold exposure that you are missing in your practice that patients need in order to support the best clinical outcomes possible. You can achieve superior outcomes by understanding the following. Common failures of indoor mold testing and remediation, mold hypersensitivity, and residual contamination. If you struggle with any of these concepts in your practice, Exposing Mold is here to support you as you support your patients. We work with clinicians to help them understand the struggles of the hypersensitive mold injured population. If you feel like you're not helping people the way you want, let us help you help others. Visit ExposingMold.com consultations and book your appointment with us today. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else that you want to tell our audience members? Where can they find you if they want to consult with you or just give us all that information? Yeah, you bet. You can find us online at testmyhome.com. Pretty easy. Our Instagram at testmyhome, Pinterest, testmyhome. Just Google it in, testmyhome. We will pop up and we have a ton of free education. We have a ton of videos. We're all about teaching, educating, helping people along the way. We have a product for everybody whatever you need with mold, call us up. We'll help you out. Awesome. Thanks everyone for joining us. We had Ryan on the show from Test My Home. He was a great recommendation from a wonderful friend of mine. And he's definitely one of the good guys. Really appreciate his expertise and what he's doing for people and how thorough he's being with testing. As we know, (laughs) mold testing is kind of a crazy, crazy uh, industry that's not really regulated. So people can kind of do whatever they want. So you definitely want to get someone in your home that understands what's going on in the home. Please go ahead and check out our our Exposing Mold group members page. (laughs) 